Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast, where we want to know God, find life, make a difference, and reach our world. If you have any questions or you want to learn more about us as a church, you can always check us out online simply by going to gracelife.church or on our YouTube channel. You can always find video content of all our messages as well as services for your preschool and elementary school kids. In the beginning, the Garden of Eden was God's intent, created out of His love towards us, the goodness of a good God. God created Adam and put him in a world where he would thrive. So why doesn't our world look like the original garden? Where did it go wrong? Join us for this six-week series as we explore the root of everything, good and bad. It can all be found in the garden. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Grace Live. So glad to be worshiping with you today. We want to especially welcome our first-time guests, whether you are in the room or online worshiping with us. Would everybody help me welcome them? So glad to have you guys worshiping with us. Hope you're experiencing the presence of God. There is nothing more important. Uh, Before we go any further into our message, I want to highlight what you've hopefully heard more than one time already, and that is that we have first step immediately after this service. So if you are new to Grace Life or you've simply never been, I want to encourage you to come to that. Got free food, free childcare. I get to know you, you get to know me. Uh, We get to answer some questions about who we are, what we do. So once again, want to invite you, but I also want to especially invite those of you that are between sixth grade and 12th grade, because what usually happens at first step, the parents come. But we are passionate here at Grace Life about making sure that our next generation doesn't leave their faith when they leave the home. And the number one statistic that helps that is when they figure out they have a purpose. And so we want you to know what your purpose is, what God is doing through you, and what your place is at Grace Life. This is not just your mama and your daddy's church, okay? So if you have not gotten connected with a serve team, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, if you're just not really sure what the next step is for you, I really want to invite our youth to come out as well. And uh, this is not on the script, but as I look around the room, I feel I have to once again tell you that if you are looking for adequate social distancing, this is not the service for you to come to. Um, And so I used to say, go to the first service, and about half of you did, and so don't come to the first either if you're looking for that. Um, And and so you've already replaced yourselves. That's kind of cool. Actually, don't forget, we do have a Thursday service, 6.45 p.m. It's our first service of the weekend. It's exactly like this one, except it does not have children's ministry, uh, and we are working on adding that in as well. So anyway, the point is, maybe you're an empty nester, you come after work on Thursday, and then you can sleep in on Sunday. How cool is that? There you go. All right, hey, we are in a series. For those of you that are here for the first time, we're actually on part four, but don't freak out or panic, because you can go back and get the first three parts on our website or our app. And the series is called In the Garden. It comes out of the story of Genesis 2 and 3. We're simply looking at what was happening in the beginning and realizing if we can go back and understand two very important things, we can fix some things that are broken in our lives because there are two very important things we discover in the garden. One of them is what was meant to be, and the other is what should not be. Our lives, typically, we're we're doing the opposite one of what we need to be doing, so hopefully we'll be able to get some of those reversed uh, throughout this series. Well, I imagine like many of you, uh, I grew up going to church uh, every week. I grew up in a Christian home, as I know some of you did as well. And uh, matter of fact, I went to church usually more than one time a week. I-, I tried to do the things that they taught us in church, tried to be a good person, right? Like uh, don't lie to your parents and don't steal and 
and, and those kinds of things. And if anybody had come to me and asked me, so, you know, what religion are you? I would have obviously answered, I'm a Christian, because I went to a Christian church and had a Bible and, and so forth. And I, I, I would imagine right now, if I were to ask most of you, if someone were to come to you and say, what is your religion? The majority of you would also say Christian. And, and I can take that guess because most of you are currently participating, all of you actually are currently participating in a Christian worship service, even those of you that are online with us. But there are people, if you ask them, what is your religion, you may get a different answer. There are people who say, uh, well, I'm, I'm not particularly religious, or I have no religion. And, and what they would probably mean by that is, well, I don't really know if there is a God, and well, if there is a God, I'm not exactly sure I want to be involved in the services or the rituals or the whole idea of worshiping and, and following some rules or whatever. Matter of fact, some people would actually go as far as to say that religion is a bad thing. And if you were to ask some of those people who are not religious, that's usually the answer they're going to give you. But did you know there are Christians who would tell you that religion is a bad thing? Anybody ever met one of those? Maybe you are one of those. Why in the world would somebody who is involved in a religion say that religion is a bad thing in and of itself. And I guess that would probably come down to what do you actually mean when you say the word? There are a lot of different things you could mean. Uh, if you were to say the idea of religion is believing in a God and living in a way that pleases him, I don't know, I'd have to go along with that. Say, that's, that sounds like a pretty decent idea to me. The question is, what happens when we start trying to live in a way that pleases God? It turns out, this got broken in the garden too. So we're gonna jump right in today. Genesis chapter two, if you're following along in your Bibles, if not, it's gonna be on the screen. We're gonna be almost at the end of the chapter because we're starting with verse 15. And so the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then the Lord God gave man a commandment saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, in the series so far, we've already looked at how this is the command that God gave Adam, and then Satan is going to use this very command to do several things. Number one, he's going to accuse God's word as not being true. He is going to try to slander the character of God, and then he's even going to use this very command to try and tempt mankind. So let's go watch this happen once again, beginning of chapter three. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And clearly that's not what God said. So now she is going to make her best effort at correcting the serpent. And so she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But God said, neither shall you touch it, or you're going to die. You know what the problem is? God never said that. She says, but God said, but God never said that. So where did the whole idea of you shall not even touch it come from? I don't know. Maybe Eve added it. We've only kind of got two choices here. So maybe Eve added it, right? Now, she gets in trouble for pretty much everything in this story, as sad as that is. But so you know, I, here's kind of the truth of the matter if you're not aware of the chronology of how everything happened. When we read in chapter 2 the command that God was giving to Adam, Adam was the only one there. And Adam had had this time with God. I imagine that Adam had a, a pretty fun relationship with God at this point. 
Because it says that God would bring every animal before Adam and he got a chance to name it. And it was at the end of naming all the animals that he discovered there was not a, a, a suitable mate and helper for Adam. And so God made Eve. But So that point to that is that Adam was hanging around in the garden with God before Eve ever came along. And he's naming animals and stuff. And I just imagine there had to be like some funny jokes. I mean, if you've ever read the Bible, God clearly has a sense of humor. And so I'm just imagining along comes the platypus. And Adam says, I think platypus is a good name. And then comes the kangaroo. I think kangaroo is a good name. I can just imagine God going, seriously, platypus? I should have let the angels name the animals. This is ridiculous. What you're, I mean, I can just imagine a really fun joke. So Adam and God, they're kind of having this fun time. But as we said, there was no helper found. God makes Eve, and now there's Eve. Now, here's the thing. We don't know the amount of time that has passed. The story reads as though it's a very short amount of time because, you know, anybody in here who's got a child and you say, don't touch it, it doesn't take long before they go and touch it, right? I mean, so I'm imagining this is a pretty short period of time. Matter of fact, this could have been Eve's very first day, at least maybe her second I don't know, so I can imagine it kind of goes like this. Adam's job was to tell Eve what God had already said, which is, hey, we can't eat of this tree. Well, why not? God gave us a rule. Okay, God gave us a rule. We cannot eat of this tree. And I can imagine since Adam had a relationship with God for a period of time, and Eve is just now on the scene, and the only thing she knows about God is that he gave a rule, she's going to just think he's a rule giver. And you know what happens when you think that your authorities, like your parents or God, is a rule giver? then you become a rule follower. And especially if you're afraid of them or you want to impress them, either way, you decide, well, if they're going to give rules, I'm going to follow rules and I'm going to be the best rule follower they ever saw. And so if he says we can't eat it, then we're not even going to touch it because if we can't touch it, then we can't eat it. That makes sense. I'm going to, be, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be the best rule follower that God has ever seen. Might have been Eve. Might have been Adam. Here's how the story could go the other way, right? So again, here's Adam. He's having fun hanging out with God, naming all the animals. God makes Eve. Adam looks and goes, wow, thank you, God. Eve, you are beautiful. Welcome to the Garden of Eden. So glad to have you here. Hey, let me take you on a little tour. Come on, see this place. It's amazing. Over there, check out that waterfall. It's beautiful, don't you? And right here, this is my favorite spot. I love just hanging out here during the day. It's kind of soft grass and pretty tree. You know what? Right beside that tree, here's my favorite fruit. You just wait until you taste this oh my gosh it is amazing and this tree by the way just don't don't even eat of this tree we, we can't do that so but let me and then the eve says well why can't we eat of that tree and adam says well i i don't really know god just says don't eat of it you'll die well why are we going to die are we allergic to it how much do we have to eat before we die is it just one bite or is it the whole thing three pieces i'm not really sure and if you're married you know exactly how the frustration builds up at this point and adam says look i don't know i don't care simply don't eat of it god said don't eat of it matter of fact just don't touch it just stop it stay away from it just don't do it i think it kind of went down like that <laughs> truth is they might have just agreed it was a good idea hey look god says don't eat we don't touch, we stay even further away, less chance we're gonna eat it, it's a good idea. The problem is they didn't say it was a good idea. They said it was God's idea. They said God said, and God never said. And in that garden, that day, religion was born. What do I mean by religion? Trading man's effort for God's acceptance. When we try to do things to make God happy with us, if God's going to make a rule, I'm going to follow the rule better than anybody, and I'm going to impress God with how good I follow a rule. We see it in every single religion in the world today. 
Around the world, everywhere you look, there are religions. They have an idea of God, and then they have a way that they're supposed to live in order to please that God. It's how you appease the God. It's how you make that God happy with you. But Christianity is different. Because every other religion tells you what you have to do for that God, Christianity is the only one that tells you what God has already done for you. Completely changes the game. The question is, if we know that, if we know that our faith is about what God has already done for us, sending his son to die on the cross, then why do we actually try so hard still to trade our effort for his acceptance? Well, I think maybe we have the same problem that Eve might have had in the story we hypothesized, and that is that we see a rule giver. We look at God and we look at his word, and what we end up seeing is just a list of rules And if he's a rule giver, then we're going to become rule followers, and we're going to do everything we can to see if we can make him happy. The the problem is they completely misunderstood who God was and what he was doing. You see, God gave protection. God knew the minute you eat of this fruit, it's going to begin a death in you, a spiritual death, a physical death. You will die because you eat of this fruit, and, and I made you for better than this. So I want to protect you, and I'm telling you, don't eat of this fruit. He gave protection. They saw prohibition. God said, don't eat because you'll die. They just saw that they couldn't have something. God gave protection. They saw prohibition. God's keeping something from us. Why can't we have that? I've got a a son who took after my wife. My wife is a a person who loves cozy environments. I, I love bright lights. I'm the person that goes around. I open up all of the blinds and all of the curtains. I go into every room and I turn on all the lights. My wife likes a cozier environment. I refer to it as dark. But she says cozy. Well, one of our sons actually took after her, and he also loves a cozy environment. And so I'll walk by his room or come into the living room or wherever he is, and I will find him playing on uh, either a phone or an iPad or something in his cozy environment, which is dark. And uh, so I will, like, turn on a light switch or something like that or open the blinds. Matter of fact, this is how I greet my kids every day. I walk into their room, I open the blinds, and they act like a vampire splashed with water. No, Dad! Sleep, idiot. Anyway, so the point is, I'll walk into the room and turn on a light switch and say, don't play on your device in the dark. And then I'll do it again and again. And the next day, walk in, turn on a light switch, don't play on your device in the dark. And finally, I just had to say, look, I'm tired of repeating myself, so here's the deal. Next time I find you playing on your phone or your iPad in the dark, I am taking it away. But see, that's coming from somebody who has worn glasses his entire life and has actually ended up having surgery on his eyes. You see, I understand what it's going to do to him over his life if he continues to look at a tiny little screen this far from his face in the dark. And so I am offering protection. But he's going to have a choice. Currently does have a choice. Because we're in the middle of it. And that is, is he going to see a loving father trying to protect his eyes? Or is he going to see a mean rule giver? You see, how we see God will determine if we see protection prohibition and that'll determine if we have a relationship or religion well this series is all about what started in the garden and still affects us today so let's fast forward let's leave the garden and jump forward to the time of Jesus it turns out religion is one of the things Jesus hated the most 
We're going to look at a story in Mark 7. If you are following along, you can jump there. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, those were two groups of religious peoples. The scribes were responsible to teach you everything that the word said, and the Pharisees were just a really good group of, of doing it exactly the way it's supposed to be done and going for extra credit every single time. That'll make sense in a moment. And so they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They're going to go on to explain this to us. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless their hands are washed properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace where they've been shaking hands and touching things that other people have touched, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They even wash the couches that they sit on that somebody just sat on. Now, we're about to fuss at the Pharisees, and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, so we're just going to take one moment and give them a little bit of props for one thing they got right, and that is that they were fully implementing all of the coronavirus restrictions <laughs> 2,000 years before it happened. That's impressive. I mean, seriously. Okay, but in all reality, what they were doing is they had taken something God said and turned it into a whole long set of rules, and they referred to it as the tradition of elders. Matter of fact, they had a list of things that was just referred to as the oral tradition. What we have spoken, these are our traditions. So it started with the idea, God says, look, you can't come to worship me if you're defiled. And he gave a list of certain things that would defile you, particular sins, maybe even some diseases, and we don't have to get into all of that, but there were things that you were supposed to not be able to come into the presence of God in the temple if you were defiled in this way. And so they began to add a list of what else could defile us, this, that, and whatever else. And so it included the fact that you might have touched something and the dust rubbed off on your hands and your hands are now dirty. You may have shaken someone's hand and your hand is now dirty. But it wasn't just common sense, hey, wash your hands, man, you don't want those germs on your food. It was a religious ceremony. Their hands had to be washed, did you see that word? Properly. Kind of like a, a surgeon washes his hands differently than you and I do. There's a, a correct ceremonial way to wash your hands before you can touch anything and eat anything. And they even took it as far as washing the cups and the bowls that they were going to use, even though they were already cleaned. That wasn't saying, hey, wash them from the last person. It was saying that once again, you had to go get the cup or the bowl, and you had to wash it ceremonially to make it to where you could even use it. Now, look, I would like to think that every one of us is a relatively clean person, and if you go to, to reach in the cabinet and you get a glass and the glass is, is a little dirty because, you know, the dishwasher sometimes just doesn't do its job, right? I mean, that always happens. There's a little something in there. I hope every one of us would set that one down and get another one. But that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about something that's dirty. They're talking about something that's already clean. But making sure that you go through the ceremony in order to follow these rules. And so here's what ends up happening. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to what? The tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, teaching as decrees of God, teaching as the word of God, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. 
There's actually another passage we won't get into today, but there was a point where they gave permission for you to disobey the word of God as long as you were obeying the tradition of the elders. Jesus rebuked them for that as well. but, But don't misunderstand, because they actually had, at least at some point, a genuine heart for honoring God. That's how it all started. They wanted to do things that God had told them to do to the best of their ability to to even take the extra step. The problem is that they began turning the extra steps into rules you actually had to follow. They really just wanted to get it right. And it's actually carried on still to this day. If you go to Israel to this day, you may encounter some of these extra steps that they have taken to make sure you don't violate the words of God. So for instance, here's one of them. God says, honor the Sabbath. You need to honor the Sabbath because God worked six days and then you rested one. And he wants us to do the same because our souls need a break. Our bodies need a break. We need time with God. We're supposed to honor the Sabbath. And so along came the idea, well, if you're going to honor the Sabbath, you don't work on the Sabbath. Well, God actually gave us that part of it. But then they said, well, what is work? And they began to come up with some ideas of what you can't do on the Sabbath and included. And that was start a fire because you got to go cut down a tree. You got to chop up the firewood. You got to drag the firewood in. You got to do all this sort of stuff. And everybody just decided we can't start a fire on the Sabbath. That's too much work. Can't start a fire. I don't know. They might have been right. But today... Did you know that when you flip on a light switch, there's a little spark that creates an electrical current? And because a little spark is technically a fire, in Israel today, if you're an observing Jew, you cannot turn on a light switch on the Sabbath. The Sabbath begins sundown on Friday evening and goes until sundown on Saturday evening. And right before the Sabbath, I've been there, I've watched this happen. They have to go around and turn on every light switch in the house that they think they are going to need for the next 24 hours, but not too many because you still got to sleep in relative darkness, but you're going to need to go in that room, and otherwise you're going to find yourself if you forgot a light switch in a really dark room trying to figure out where the salt and pepper is. It's crazy. They also cannot start a car because when you turn the key and the ignition, the whole gasoline spark, all that sort of stuff, I'm not a mechanic, I don't know, but that's exactly what happens. There's a fire in there somewhere, a controlled fire, but it's a fire. And so if you need to take a taxi during the Sabbath, again, from dinner Friday to dinner Saturday, it's only Arabs who will drive you. All of the Jews are not allowed to drive. And they even take it to the point that if you push an elevator button, you've again created an electrical spark. So you cannot tell the elevator to let you off at the third floor on the Sabbath. So in Israel, every hotel, starting at sundown on Friday, goes into automated mode, and it just goes up and down, and up, and down, and stopping on every single floor so you don't have to push a button and dishonor the Sabbath. You don't want to have a room on the fifth floor on the Sabbath. Been there, done that. But anyway, I don't know. Is that what God had in mind? But look, let's say this. They do have a point. I think they have a really good point, actually. If God says, don't dishonor the Sabbath, we tend to get too close to the line, so they try to move the line a little bit and make it a little easier not to cross the line. Adam and Eve had a good point. Sounds like wisdom to me. If we're not supposed to eat it, let's not even touch it. It's really hard to eat something you can't touch. We would do the exact same thing today. We would say it's just wisdom, right? I mean, look, if we were talking to a friend of ours who says, hey, man, I want you to celebrate with me. I'm one month sober. They're they're coming out of alcoholism. And they said, I think I'm going to go back and talk to my friends about how good this feels. And we'd look at them and go, no, don't go in the bar, man. Only one month sober. No, don't go in the bar. 
And this is why I'm just going in there because I want to tell my friends how good it feels to be sober and actually be able to think once again. So I want to go and tell them, okay, go in the bar, but that's it. Don't, uh, well, I, I'm going to order a drink because I need to look like them, but I won't drink it. I'm just going to order it. It's going to sit down. Don't go in the bar. Don't order. The, see what I'm saying? We would say the same thing. It's wisdom. It just makes sense. So what's the problem? What's what Jesus said? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me means they say all the right things. They do all the right things. They don't push elevator buttons. They don't go in the bar. They don't touch the fruit. They say all the right things. They do all the right things, but their heart is so far from me. They have made it all about the rules. They've lost sight of me completely. They don't even know what I'm thinking. They don't know what I'm feeling. They're not talking to me. They're just following a set of rules over and over and over. And you know what happens when we lose sight of God? It makes the devil's job really easy. But don't miss this. You can't talk to the snake if you're talking with God. We lose sight of God. Let's fast forward one more time. We're gonna leave the time of Jesus. Now we're gonna come to where we are today. Truth is, very little has changed. We're doing the exact same things. Let me ask you a question. Is your relationship with God, do you even, would you say you have a relationship with God or are you still trying to appease the angry God in heaven by following all the rules? I, I talked to a lot of people, they actually believe that still is how it is. You know, the Old Testament, you got the angry God. He can't wait to strike you with lightning. And then in the New Testament, you got nice hippie Jesus. He loves us all, you know, and everybody's kind of confused. And so you're always trying to follow the rules and make the angry God happy enough not to strike you. Do you have a relationship with him though? I told you at the beginning that I grew up going to church multiple times a week. Had to wear a tie every time too doing all the right things as best I knew. That was for 16 years. It was only after 16 years when I was a sophomore in high school that I discovered I knew a lot about the rules. I'd go to a church building all the time, but I didn't know God. I didn't have a relationship with him. I was saying all the right things, but my heart was far from him. And so I would say when I was 16 is the point where I got saved. That's maybe a phrase that's new to some of you. It's where you, you declare Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You recognize his death was exchanged for yours and you exchange the life you're living for the one he has for you. The question I would have for you is, do you know that you are completely loved, accepted, and forgiven? Do you know that you know that you know? I talk to so many people who say, well, I try to do the right things and I try to be good and I hope I'm going to heaven. And they sit in this room every single week, every single, and they still, I hope. Do you believe that if you showed up at heaven right now, that there would be a party? They would celebrate you when you show up, that they'd say, Parker's here, come on, everybody in heaven rush out, and everybody's hugging Parker, high five, Jesus comes up, throws you up on his shoulder, goes through the streets. I mean, do you believe that's the welcome that's awaiting you? Or do you think just maybe you'd get turned away? Let me take a moment and see if I can remove as many doubts as possible before we leave today. I'll give you just a few things the Bible says about this. The first one is out of Romans 5. says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, before we ever did anything good, before we ever followed one rule, before we ever made up another rule to help us follow that rule, before we ever went to church, before we did that. The truth is before you were born. Because this happened 2,000 years ago. Now look, here's the truth. I have four kids. 
And I can't imagine the love that God demonstrated. I don't know that I have the capacity for that. Because I'm just going to tell you the truth. I hope I don't offend any of you when I say this, but I would not trade one of my kids for you. And any parent in the room, I hope, understands what I'm saying. I mean, I love you, but I don't love you that much. I can't imagine what it would take for me to trade one of my children's life for you. But God did. And when he did that, he traded his son's life and watched his son die the most gruesome death that humanity had ever come up with. He watched his son suffer through that physical pain. He watched his son have all of the sins of the world placed upon him in that moment only to hear his son say, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he loves you. How do we think we can do anything to increase that love? How is it that we think, well, if I just go to church one more time, if I, if I just do this one thing, if I just give a little, if I just, and we start turning everything back into religion, trying to do things to earn his acceptance. How do we think that we can do more than he did out of his love 2,000 years ago? That's why the Bible says, probably the most famous Bible verse ever, for God so loved the world. Not for God sort of loved the world or not just God, well, put up with enough. No, for God loved the world so much. For God loved us so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Look, here's the simple truth of the gospel. We're gonna do this real fast. Romans 3 says that all have sinned. That's you and me. That's every one of us, no exception. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean that you're a mass murderer or anything like that. It could be as simple as you're, you're this close to perfect. You're better than the rest of us. You just had one really bad thought in fourth grade and you had wished your fourth grade teacher just never came back again because she was just evil and you had a bad thought about her, right? That's all it takes because God is perfectly holy. And if any of you can come up with the idea that I've never even had one bad thought, never one bad reaction, never said one thing to somebody I shouldn't have said, I've always displayed God perfectly to every other person in the entire world, okay. But for the rest of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So where does that leave us? Romans 6 tells us, for the wages of that sin is death. That's where it leaves us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's because Jesus did live a perfect life on earth. He did perfectly display God's nature. And so when his blood was shed, because blood pays for sin, his blood was able to pay for our sins and not his own. And that's how it becomes a free gift of salvation. And that's why the Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. Not because you showed up at church every Sunday, not because you served on that team, not because you made sure to read your Bible for three minutes every morning before you went to work. Nothing! Nothing. Jesus died once for all your sins. Once for all your sins. You get that? So many of us feel bad about the things that we will do in the future. We're like, well, I'm okay now. God forgave me. Well, if Jesus died 2,000 years ago for what you did last week, then how did he not die 2,000 years ago for what you'll do next week? You see, you're forgiven. You are forgiven if you're saved. The Spirit of God dwells in you if you're saved. You have eternal life if you are saved. You are going to heaven if you are saved. So how do you know if you're saved? Last one. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Some of us just turned that into a religious two-step formula. Well, I've got to say it and believe Jesus died. Okay, good, I'm good. Now, what it means is that there is something genuine in here about your understanding of who Jesus is. He's the son of God who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for you and is currently at the right hand of the Father, not dead. He's alive. Because of that same supernatural power, he's able to raise you to eternal life. And that what's in here can't stop from coming out here and saying that Jesus is my king, Jesus is my Lord. It's not a two-step formula. I really hope at this moment that all the doubts of whether or not you will be celebrated at the gates of heaven if you have made Jesus your king, I hope those doubts are gone. If you have not made Jesus your king, we're gonna, we're gonna do something about that before we leave today. But the real problem that we've gotta solve before we leave today is once we all get past that, once we all get to a point where we say, I know I'm going to heaven, man, then we go right back to religion because we're all really worried if God's still happy with us. Well, I know he loves me, but does he like me? And then we turn it back into rules trying to earn the idea that God will be happy with us. So we start doing things once again in the name of religion. And there are many good things we should do, many good things we can do. And I know somebody at this point is thinking, oh my gosh, he's almost done, and he has not fixed this mess that he made. Because this is a dangerous message. Because some of you right now are out there hearing, we can do anything we want. Jesus died. I can live anywhere. I don't have to worry about anything, the Bible says. I'm forgiven. I'm good. I'm... I've taught school for 11 years, and I had one student whose memory is still seared. Name. I can't forget the name. One student in 11 years cannot forget his name. If I saw him today, I'd know his name. He's that one student. Maybe I need to repent, but I did pray he'd get sick and not show up. And one day, I got so frustrated with him and the way he was, it made every teacher miserable and bullied other kids and everything else. It was just, just anyway, shudder at the thought of his name. One day I said, why do you do this when you know you were such a pain? And his reply, by the way, pastor's kid, his reply was, hey man, I'm forgiven. I can do anything I want. That is not what I have preached today. What I have tried to explain is that there is a difference between why we do what we do, because what we do matters, because what we do is supposed to come out of our relationship with God. It's supposed to be a response to what God has done for us, not a bunch of rules to earn his acceptance. Do you hear the difference in that? Matter of fact, I'm going to tell it this way. Religion is man's effort to earn God's acceptance. But relationship is man's response because of God's acceptance. I'm not saying it doesn't matter how you live, because it does. But the question is why? Religion is man's effort to earn God's acceptance. That's for the people who think they're not good enough, they're not saved. And they're always trying to figure out what they can do to make sure God doesn't strike them with lightning. And they choose a religion. Some try Christianity, some try other things. But relationship is our response to God because of what he's already done and knowing that we're already loved. There is a good 
and right thing to do. The question is, why do you do them? Do you serve in the hopes that God will erase a few of the things you did wrong? Or do you serve because Jesus served you on the cross? Do you go to church to kind of help you feel good and remove some of your guilt and hope God will like smile? Or do you go to church because you want to be with God's family and have time in his presence? Do you give because you hope God will credit something to your account that will outweigh the mistakes you've made? Or do you give because you see God as your blessing and provider and you simply want to honor him? The best illustration that I can give you, the best analogy I can come up with is really the difference between dating and marriage. Religion is like dating. And a relationship with God is like marriage. Let me explain myself. See, when you're dating, you constantly have to do something to impress the person so that you hopefully get a second date and they don't break up with you. Or a third date or a fourth date. And matter of fact, there are very specific rules you follow in order to keep this person coming back. Like, if you don't know it, by the way, all of the young people, I'm going to help you out here. Uh, first date rules are you do not order barbecued ribs, corn on the cob, or fried chicken. There is no way to eat corn on the cob and impress the person. First of all, you look like a beaver when you're doing it. Second of all, you get corn between all of your teeth and butter all over your mouth. And then you smile at them, hoping they're going to ask you out again. No, you don't do that. You don't do ribs because you end up with barbecue sauce everywhere. Then you're trying to open the little moisty thing they sent you. And you can't quite do that, but you've already got it covered in sauce and then sauce is on your shirt. It doesn't get you a second date. And everybody from the South knows fried chicken is always finger looking good. And that is not what you want to do on your first date. You don't do some things on your first date. You go to a fancy restaurant to impress them so you can get a second date. When you're married, you go to a restaurant with your favorite food and who cares if it's fancy? When you're married, you do things to please them because you love them and they love you. Yep, you still do things. My wife is Romanian, if you did not know, and the national seasoning of Romania is garlic. And I despise garlic. <laughs> they actually take it and press it into a liquid and pour it over the food. We just got like that little sprinkle stuff. It's just like tolerable. And because we've been married 24 and a half years, she will leave out some or most and sometimes all of the garlic in a recipe just because she loves me. Think about that. Here's what I really want you to think about. Too many Christians have been dating God for way too long, trying to impress him, hoping he won't break up with you. Relationship was replaced by religion in the garden. The good news, religion, relationship replaced religion on the cross. Did y'all get that? Relationship replaced religion on the cross. We get a choice of how we're going to approach God. So the question I'm gonna leave you with today, is your relationship with God about what you're doing for him or about what he's already done for you? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much that 
you love us. We just take a moment and say, thank you, God, that you love us. And God, right now, I pray that you would open our eyes, either for those watching online, those in the room, all of us, God, that you, you would open our eyes to the things that we do out of some sense of guilt or sense of not thinking that you love us enough. And God, let us remove that. And let us instead do things for you because of what you've done for us, because we love you and you love us. We want to please you, but we're not. We don't want to be people who constantly feel like we've got to earn what you've already done. It's an insult. So we say, God, forgive us. And my prayer for every person hearing this message is that they will know that they know that they are accepted and loved by you. If you'll just stay in a place of prayer, I wanna close by talking to those who don't know that they know that. And it may be because you've never made Jesus your king. The truth is, we've explained it all throughout the message. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for you on the cross, and rose again, offering you the free gift of salvation. But each of us has to make that exchange. At some point in human history, each one of us has to say, Jesus, I wanna trade the life I have for the one you have for me. If you've never done that, I wanna help you do that right now. So wherever you are, if you're kneeling on your living room floor, or if you're seated in this room right now, say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now, I want to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people, everybody. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.